1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance
0: for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor US in Washington, D.C.
1: I'm Alex Kruger, International Managing Editor in London. It's Thursday, the 7th of April. You're listening to World
0: Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
1: This week, we discuss calls for the investigation and prosecution of apparent war crimes carried out by Russia in Ukraine. Just how long is the road to justice? Then we talk
0: about Viktor Orban's recent re-election in Hungary.
1: We have scored a victory so big that it can be seen even from the moon, but definitely from Brussels.
0: Will the EU take a stronger stand against the Hungarian Prime Minister? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Alex, for those who have maybe not been paying particularly close attention to the latest from Ukraine, if you could maybe bring our listeners up to speed on on the latest atrocities, really, and why there have been renewed calls for investigation into apparent war crimes.
1: So this really ramped up at the weekend when Russian forces had retreated from the town of Bucha, which is a commuter town just outside the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. And the Ukrainian Forces moved in, and what they found was absolutely horrifying. They found the bodies of civilians with their hands bound. They had apparently been shot in the head at point-blank range. They found mass graves. Many of those in the mass graves were civilians. And since then, more and more disturbing reports have come out from towns like Chernihiv, Irpin, these places in the north of Ukraine where Russian forces have been pulling back. And so this raises the question of were these war crimes? If so, were they crimes against humanity? Were they genocide? That's a very big word to be putting into the discussion. But it's opened up a lot of concern about what's been happening in Ukraine. And the other thing to stress is that we, We don't know yet what has been happening in some of the areas still under Russian control. In particular, Mariupol in the south, which has been completely encircled. Civilians are trapped there. Any effort to get convoys in to evacuate them, those efforts have been blocked. But the the Russians have had that under really tight control. We just don't know what has been happening. But what we have seen, certainly from satellite imagery um, and other sources, gives reason to fear the worst.
0: And I think it's important to to stress exactly, as, as you said, that there are parts of the country that those who would investigate this have not really had access to. Um, it's also important to stress that this is an ongoing war, which makes the... So in, in order to actually prosecute war crimes, you need a, a significant body of evidence to prove that an individual carried out a particular crime. That is very difficult to do when so there there are a host of reasons that actually prosecuting war crimes is quite difficult. There are many reasons that it doesn't happen more often, but one of them is that you need evidence to prove that a war crime was carried out by a person. That evidence is difficult to to find, to maintain, particularly when a war is ongoing like it is in this case. Before we get back to some of the, the challenges or to speak more about some of the challenges in this case, Alex, you spent so much time reporting on the Balkans. I, I suppose my my question is, what can be learned from what it took to investigate, prosecute war crimes in, in those cases that we could perhaps apply to today in thinking about and talking about this?
1: Well, I think one of the really important differences since the Balkan wars, and it was 30 years, so actually this week, since the siege of Sarajevo began, and there, was, there were ceremonies in the Bosnian capital this week. In that time, one of the really significant advances has been in the gathering of open, what's called open-source intelligence. So this can be posts from social media, which are verified, which are geolocated. This satellite imagery has come a long way in the intervening 30 years. And that makes it much easier to assemble a coherent picture of what happened. And as you say, who was responsible? Because if if a crime happened, who was behind it? Now, after the massacre at Srebrenica in July 1995, there were quite concerted efforts by Bosnian Serb forces to disguise what had happened. So the primary mass graves were dug up. And people went in with diggers to disperse the remains of those who'd been killed and to make identification much more difficult. so the the bodies were mixed up, they were reburied. And this was a kind of a, an effort to to cover tracks. There were satellite images from that time, but it wasn't as commonplace as it is now, where we're almost seeing investigations, open source investigations. In real time. But organizations, say, like Bellingcat, have established real expertise in this area and are providing valuable evidence. Um, So I think that is one thing to stress. One thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is I mean, I remember watching the news in the early 1990s when the Bosnian war was starting. And, you know, I was a journalist in local radio at the time. So Bosnia was really not part of my beat. It was this confusing geopolitical jumble of names that would come on the TV or the radio. And I didn't understand as much as I wanted to. And I remember in particular, Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karanjic coming on the news and saying, oh, we will stop all hostilities or we never shelled Sarajevo or whatever. And the next day, there would be another shelling attack. And it clearly was the Bosnian Serb forces who were encircling the city. And it was just this absolute barefaced denial. And we're seeing that again now with some of the Russian propaganda. But I think there is much less willingness in the outside world anyway to believe that in terms of the russian public i think the you know alternative sources of information have almost entirely been shut down it's very difficult to get anything beyond russian state controlled media so if you're not actively looking for that information you won't find it however outside observers other countries it is possible to hear this different narrative and to take the evidence that has been assembled from various sources and say, yes, there were war crimes. Yes, there is something to investigate. And let's see if we can establish a narrative of what really went on in places like Butcher.
0: One other difference that I've been thinking of is that these institutions that we have to investigate and prosecute war crimes, namely, I'm thinking of the International Criminal Court, simply didn't exist um, back in the 1990s. The court was founded in 2002. Not to make this too American-centric, but one thing that I've been thinking of is that Biden is calling, you know, calling Putin a war criminal and calling for an investigation into war crimes. And I, I think that there should be an investigation into apparent war crimes. I want to be very clear on that. At the same time, the U.S. is not a state party to the ICC. Under the Trump administration actually sanctioned prosecutor for investigations into apparent war crimes carried out by Americans in Afghanistan. And even when the Biden administration lifted those sanctions... Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, "Well, we disagree with the ICC's decision to it basically objected to the idea that the ICC would investigate Americans, even though the U.S. wasn't a state party to the ICC. Now, another country that is not a state party to the ICC is Russia. So, to me, it just be, it, it's such a clear and actually Ukraine isn't either, but Ukraine has said twice has made two declarations saying we accept ICC jurisdiction." for war crimes committed in our country. So all this to say is that to me, one thing that this is really underscored is that international law should not and cannot be a pick and choose concept, right? If if we took seriously the argument that, well, if you're not a state party to the ICC, that's it. Guess your war crimes can't be investigated. We would not even be having this conversation right now.
1: Yeah. One of the interesting parallels with the former Yugoslavia is, of course, there was a war crimes tribunal, but that was because it was quite focused. And it, it laid the groundwork for the ICC, but then in in widening the jurisdiction of the ICC, that made it much, much more difficult. And of course, countries did, the US and Russia did refuse to sign up. And you can see, understandably, that this caused some frustration um, with what happened, you know, events in Afghanistan or the Middle East, that the, that it wasn't, equally applied. But yes, there is a sense in which these efforts to establish some kind of forum for judicial recourse have founded, And it is some of the most powerful countries in the world that have refused to, to take part in them. And that feeds a general sense of frustration with those countries, among others, the Ukrainians or the Afghans or whoever would be entitled to be frustrated with the reluctance of the US and and Russia to sign up. And it does, I think it it undermines the status of, of those countries as actors in good faith in any situation, particularly perhaps for the US, which has set itself up along with other Western countries, you know, the UK, European countries, as being upholders of the rule of law, human rights, and so on, not to accept the rulings of an international criminal court, does their reputation no good in the long run.
0: And doesn't help the court in the long run. And we're seeing right now why it's why we need institutions like this.
1: Yeah. And the UN Security Council is... Another example. It's over 70 years since the end of the Second World War and the establishment of the Security Council with the veto of the five permanent members, including Russia, China, and the US. And with Kosovo, we saw that Russian veto, which meant that any kind of UN intervention in Kosovo at the time of the active conflict was blocked. So that meant that NATO went ahead. And now that has left real. Damage to the reputation of NATO and the Western Alliance in Southeastern Europe and in in Russia. You know, this argument has been used around Ukraine that the West went ahead without a UN mandate. The West is prepared to act illegally without international consent in somewhere like Kosovo. So, what were you to tell us what to do in Ukraine? And again, it just, you know, you, you can't get any action agreed at the UN. If you go down another route, you get criticized and it makes it extremely difficult to know what to do. At the same time, there is huge public pressure and and there there is an outcry for action in places, you know, in in Ukraine in particular. People seeing what what is happening, the European public, the North American public, um, stop, stop these atrocities, stop any war crimes from being committed. But it's very difficult to do so because the institutions that were set up partly for that purpose are unable to fulfill that purpose.
0: We're going to now switch gears slightly, but only slightly because the the content of this next part of the discussion is is quite different. But the theme of institutions being kept from doing what they were set up to do will carry us through. As I said at the top of this um, podcast, Viktor Orban was re-elected Prime Minister of Hungary. Now, in part, this was due to genuine popular support there's really no way around that that people chose to vote for fidesh however there was also what we would call gerrymandering right the way that the electoral system was set up was set up to benefit fidesh and further the government exercises such control over the media landscape that this election has been called free but unfair by some so In the run-up to the election, there were some who said Orban has been accused by many of corruption and has been accused of using EU funds to further this corruption. So now there are calls for the EU to freeze or halt that funding such that they are not propping up alleged corruption in Hungary. Alex, what do you make of these calls? And do you think the EU will actually do it?
1: Well, it's interesting because just this week, the European Commission um, has announced that it is going to begin proceedings against Hungary for violating the rule of law. So there does seem to be some willingness to act after years of hesitation about the the damage that could do. But I think Orbán has been quite successful at playing the EU at its own game or at his game, where he has frustrated... Some action, particularly he has resisted, for example, any move from the EU to stop imports of Russian oil and gas. But at the same time, he does want to continue taking EU funds. Hungary has been a huge beneficiary. Um, And Emily, you are the expert on Hungary, you have written the book on it. So, what do you think are the prospects for Orban's next term? Should we be concerned about the state of democracy?
0: I think we should be extremely concerned about the state of democracy. A couple things. The first is that after he won, Orban said that he beat a host of people, you know, Soros. Including Zelensky. Zelensky, which was wild, right? The idea that the Ukrainian president who's currently under literal siege was up against you. No, he was calling on you to do more to help his country, which has been invaded by its larger neighbor. So Zelensky, he also said... Soros, which is the the subject of the book to which Alex was just kindly uh, alluding, and also Brussels bureaucrats. But what's so interesting to me is that if you take away the Brussels bureaucrats, this whole system falls apart, right? Whatever you make of the theory that Orban is running a mafia state, whether you think, no, that's not true at all, or yes, that's what's happening here, Orban doesn't get to enjoy the position that he does in Hungary without the EU. Both because of the funds that come in, And because he he gets to go to Brussels and say, oh, I'm standing up for Hungary, comes back, say, oh, I stood up to Brussels, like it finances the country. And it also provides him with a foil that's not a domestic political opponent. So I think we should just see through the EU bashing and see it for what it is quite clearly. Secondly, yeah, I think we should be very concerned about the state of democracy in Hungary. I spoke to some before the election who said that this past election was the last chance to... To get him out by democratic means. And obviously, we don't know yet whether or not that will be true. But I think we're going to see more bashing of specters like Soros, more maligning of the EU. I also think that it, it is extremely unlikely to me that respect for judicial institutions, for example, or independent media grows in Orbán's new term.
1: And what about the what remains of the Hungarian opposition? I mean, they did manage to get together and unite behind a single candidate. Can they sustain that unity having been defeated by Orban?
0: I think it's going to be very demoralizing for the Hungarian opposition because as you say, they united together for the first time. It was not like a liberal from Budapest who was up against Orban. It was a more conservative mayor, Peter Markazai, and they lost badly. I think it's going to be extremely demoralizing for them. That said, there are people in Hungary for whom there is no choice but to continue to oppose, either because they're NGO workers and they try to help migrants and asylum seekers or because they are gay. And oh, by the way, Hungary just passed this referendum that's much like the recent law in Florida saying that you can't have any educational materials that expose the youths to LGBTQ identities. For people who are called, either called to do that work or who just their very existence is oppositional to the Orban government, they don't have a choice and they will continue to oppose this regime.
1: And how much credibility does the European Commission have as an institution with the Hungarian public? So if the Commission says to the Hungarian government, you have violated the rule of law, we are going to fine you, what will be the reaction in Hungary from just ordinary voters?
0: That's interesting. I think we will see, right, to what extent that's able to break through in Hungarian media. One thing that I think will be interesting to watch is that um, it's going to be a very hard time economically in Hungary because of pre-election spending, because of the Russian war in Ukraine. And further, Orban, his traditional foreign policy game has sort of been to play Russia and China and the US and EU off of each other. And and that obviously is, your, your ability to do that right now is more limited you know, yes, I think he is a threat to democracy. No, I'm not sure that like calls from the EU will really be heard by the population that just reelected him. But on the other hand, it's not going to be so easy for Orban either.
1: And is there anything that can hold him to account if if elections have failed and and the EU is taking some steps but slowly? It, it's really down to the EU. I think uh, you cannot be
0: so. For example, on the rule of law, one thing that, that one hears Hungarian officials say at like conferences and, and so on and so forth, or privately, is um, you know, we have a different understanding of rule of law. Well, no, actually, I'm sorry, you signed up to be part of the EU, which has one very clear understanding of rule of law. And it is incumbent on the EU to say that you either interpret that definition as it is written, like you, you take that understanding of rule of law, and you're a part of this project, or you're not. Otherwise, why pretend it's a political project?
1: There are no alternative facts, and there's no alternative rule of law. Exactly.
0: Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman World Review comes France Elects a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. On that grim note, it is now time for a section that we like to call... You ask us. It's so much easier with just one person. It's Synchronized every <laughs> time. Okay. So this question comes to us from Richard on Twitter, and it is, how much freedom did Merkel have to move away from Russian oil and gas? And hence, how much is she responsible for Germany being in this position today? Alex, I don't know the answer to this. Um, I do have thoughts, but I would like to hear from you first.
1: I would say that... Yes, Merkel does bear a certain responsibility. Her term in office was marked by very cautious progress in a lot of ways. She was very good at spying where public opinion had moved and then moving with it. She did not get out in front of public opinion with the singular exception of the migrant crisis in 2015. She could have taken action, but there is an extremely important commercial relationship historically between Germany and Russia. Russia is one of Germany's big export markets. There's the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which was specifically built to supply gas from Russia to Germany. That has been nearing completion. And it was really only in the final months of her term in office that there was any disquiet and there was any moved to suspend the um, entry into operation of Nord Stream 2. And she did not act ahead of public opinion. She did not see a problem with Germany getting its energy supplies from Russia and making itself so dependent. So arguably, she bears part of the responsibility. And what's been interesting to watch is the way the new government of Olaf Scholz has now moved to to stop Nord Stream 2 from going into operation. He has rethought a lot of Germany's policies. There is this so-called Seitenwender, a change of era. And, and there, is, there is a rethink from the caution that w- was so marked in the Merkel years.
0: I think I would just add two things. The first is that world leaders always have choices. Right. I, I don't like this framing of I, I, I'm not blaming Richard, the, the questioner for this, but this framing that sometimes is, is brought up in defensive world leaders of what else could they do? It's make it make a different choice. Right. Make a more politically unpopular choice that evidence greater foresight. Right. The other thing that I would say is that I think that we are going to at some point, if we're not already having it, um, a similar discussion with respect to Merkel and Orban's Hungary. There are some who argue that she really empowered him and that the EU and Hungary are in the place that they are today now, in large part because of Merkel's Germany. I think it's important to note, just as we did at the end of her term, that as she was leaving, we said, you can't write the legacy just yet. But that's true of now as well, right? Like we we still have to see how this plays out, how it goes.
1: I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And it was The Christian Democrats, uh, Merkel's own party, who, for example, wanted to keep Fidesz in the main centre-right grouping in the European Parliament um, and keep him as part of the family. And there was a reluctance to move against him. And now look where we are. It looks very different now. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Okay, we have something different for you next week. You're going to join us, please, on Monday for Ido's France Elects. He will be giving his reaction to the first round of the French presidential election. And then join us on Tuesday for our interview episode with André Soldato.
1: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and
0: until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.